Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Focused on Forward. Today, we have the privilege of speaking to Carrie Creed. Now, I'm really excited to talk to Carrie because we we met through a, a Facebook group uh, which allows you to reach out and talk to uh, different podcasters about being on their shows and uh, or being, a, you know, looking for guests or finding a guest or or whatever. Uh, but when she reached out to me, she said, well, I've overcome a couple things. Now, as I was telling her pre-show, Carrie has vastly undersold the amount of things that she has undergone and had to overcome in her life. And I'm really excited to hear what it is took from her to be able to do this, to be able to become focused on forward, to be able to push forward, uh, even when uh, it may have seemed that things in life were going against her. So Carrie, thank you for being on Focused on Forward today. And thank you for being willing to come here and share your story. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I I love the idea of this show and I love being able to share my story to really turn the pain that I went through into purpose and to help others overcome their challenges and, and learn to persevere. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so moving into your story, I just want to let the audience know that uh, if you go to her website, uh, carriecreed.com, it's it's C-A-R-R-I-E-C-R-E-E-D.com, you'll be able to see images of what she's talking about as she's going through her story today. Uh, and so as you're listening to this, if you're in a safe place uh, where you can sit down, please don't do it if you're driving, of course. But if you're sitting at your desk and you're listening please pull up carriecreed.com and you can look at through some of the pictures of uh, what she's gone through, what she's talking about, because we're going to talk about two extremely rare life-altering medical conditions and what it did not only to her body, but to her uh, her mental health, her emotional health. And then, of course, we, as we always do, we like to look at how she became focused on forward. So, Carrie, uh, to the extent with, your which, uh, with which you're comfortable sharing, please bring us into your story. Absolutely. So as you kind of alluded to, there's there's two unbelievably unique, complex, and crazy situations um, at minimum. There's many more than that, actually, but I, I kind of narrow down my story to just the two major ones that's greatly affected my life. Uh, the first one has to do with my chronic illness. Uh, it's an invisible illness that I was diagnosed with called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS for short. And uh, going back to my childhood, I was misdiagnosed for many, many years. It's a, a very difficult syndrome to diagnose. It makes me very flexible. It makes my ligaments and tendons stretched out, my skin stretchy, I bruise easy, um, I'm clumsy, and I have a lot of pain. And, you know, when you're a child, you have growing pains and you tend to be flexible. And so a lot of doctors overlook those symptoms and just say, oh, you must be growing or, you know, uh, you're playing sports, so you're sore, things like that. And uh, they looked into it for a long time. And until I had 
knee braces and wrist braces and ankle braces and all of that. And until sports became really not fun anymore because I was in more pain than, you know, I was, I was in more pain than I was smiling. Um, I, I, I really pushed to, to see more specialists and it truly wasn't until I had a major issue with, uh, extreme muscle fatigue where I wasn't able to walk all of a sudden that people started taking me very seriously. And what had happened was the the first situation, which is not even really counting the, the first two that I talked about, but the minor one in high school that started everything was if you were to stand up and if you were to, you know, put your legs together, your feet are parallel pointing forward. And if you just squatted a little bit, your kneecaps point forward, correct? Like they go over your feet. Right. Right. You can, you can picture that. Well, what happened with me all of a sudden is when I did that or when I walked, my right knee, my right patella, my right kneecap, instead of bending forward, would bend left behind my left leg, but my feet would stay parallel. Oh, wow. And so as you can imagine, the crippling aspect of what that looked like and the pain that that caused, and it was such a sudden change in my body that uh, you know, I was obviously taken right to the hospital. They alluded to the fact that uh, a, a, the iliotibular band, the IT band in my right leg stretched out, and if they pulled it tighter, it would straighten my knee and I'd be good. Well, you know, had that surgery, had months of physical therapy, homeschooled throughout the summer to continue with my high school class and healed. Okay. Fast forward three years. Um, this is when everything kind of went on after I, I distinctly remember this day. And as you, you know, you think back to dates in history, um, you know, uh, that major events that happened and you can kind of place exactly where you were at those moments. Um, sure. I think back to like nine 11 or, you know, assassinations or, or whatever, like you can actually know exactly where you were in those moments. And Absolutely. I, remember leaving my last final. I was a nursing student um, and I was leaving my last final going to my dormitory. I was walking up a slight hill and I just happened to look down and I noticed my right knee just going in a little bit. And I stopped for a second and I was like, "Mm, that's not, that's not good. And I tried again and I walked again and I was able to perfectly walk, but I just noticed my knee was just, you know, guiding to the left. And, you know, like every 20 year old does at that time, they call their mom (laughs) and they say, can you call the surgeon? I'd like to, you know, have an appointment just to make sure everything's okay. Well, within two weeks prior to that appointment, I was completely confined to a wheelchair again and unable to walk. And when I finally saw that doctor, um, they tried a couple different things, but ultimately they said my first surgery failed and I had to go through a complex uh, very unique and even, you know, you can say barbaric surgery that was called a double rotational osteotomy. And it was as bad as it sounds. Um, it was literally the doctors sawing apart my femur, which is your thigh bone and sawing apart my tibula and fibula, which is your lower leg bone, rotating my leg, the upper and lower parts in opposite directions and inserting 12 rods that stuck out of my leg. And that was the only way to permanently make my leg straight. Now, for uh, for those playing the home version, if you go to her <laughs> website again, you can see images of this, um, which, yeah, I was going to ask you about how what those rods were for, and but that completely answers that. And, and yeah, that is quite the contraption that they have attached to your leg. In yes, and you'll see pictures. my my very hairy leg because your body, <laughs> your it's actually fascinating. 
your body sends so much nutrients and everything to the area that it needs to heal. And I wasn't able to shave my right leg because of the pins and the amount of hair that grew on that leg was not to be gross, but like unbelievable. Um, just to show like what your body's actually able to do incredible things. Um, well, so I will say right. for the number of in shorts pictures that you've posted, because I assume that would probably be the only thing you could really wear with yes. those leg things, the way that, you know, those, those pins going through your legs, it's not noticeable. So I think you're fine. Oh, but... well, thanks. Well, thank you. It was the least of my concerns back then. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But I, I have one quick question for you. And before we, we move on with your story yeah. here, now you'd mentioned that, that you'd gotten to a point where sports were no longer playing fun or, or playing sports was no longer fun. Excuse me. So did sports exacerbate this, the situation or is it something that just, you know, a, you know, as you grew, it was going to happen anyway? It's a great question. And no one really knows the answer of that. Um, okay. I can't, I can't say that if I was on, let's say bed rest for my entire childhood, that this wouldn't have happened. Um, doctors sure. can never okay. say that. I don't think sports made it worse. If I was in some, um, you know, competitive, let's say gymnastics or sports that would actually, you know, be stretching my joints more or doing that type of thing, I would say absolutely. It probably caused some major harm, but the sports I was in, um, wasn't, providing that much additional stress. You know what I mean? I was playing basketball and softball. It wasn't, it wasn't that something lower impact physical. Exactly. Exactly. But we'll never know. Um, uh, I mean, the good thing is what I've learned is that, you know, bed rest is the worst thing that could be for this condition. And I'll go into that in a little bit later when I go into why I was on bed rest again and how concerned I was because with the EDS, your, your muscles can atrophy very fast and atrophy, atrophy is basically they get smaller and weaker. And as right. you know, um, you know, when something minor happens or even when you're sick with a cold and in bed for a week, you know, you get up and you're super weak and your body mm -hmm. just feels like, oh, like sluggish. And could you imagine that times, you know, months and months and months and months, it, it takes a long time to recover for that. And since my muscles have to work so hard to keep my joints in place, because my ligaments and tendons don't, they fatigue very easily and they have to be as strong as possible. So that's why being active is important, but it's a really fine balance between being too active and hurting your joints and not being active enough and having your muscles atrophy. Yeah, that's almost a double-edged sword then. If you're not careful, if you go, if you go over that line, that could, yeah, I could see that. Okay. Yep, absolutely. So uh, basically I, I had the surgery. Um, I was told I was gonna miss one semester of nursing school and I ended up missing two years, uh, four semesters. And that was because of the amount of complications. I was actually in the hospital um, in isolation for 73 days. I contracted oh, wow. staph MRSA. Yeah, so I should probably stop there. 73 days is a massive amount of time to be in the hospital. Um, yes, it uh, is. An unbelievable amount of time. Um, I, I got staph MRSA, I think, from, from the operating room, which complicated things, had a secondary emergency surgery with an issue with a pin, and then learning how to walk. Um, you know, learning how to walk again on parallel bars or with a walker, I ended up blowing out both my shoulders because I was putting so much pressure on my arms. Because Makes as sense. you can imagine, putting pressure on your leg was additionally painful. And so you try to disperse that weight and my shoulders couldn't take it. So I lost the mobility of my arms as well. So the only reason they sent me home after 73 days was because, you know, I was doing physical therapy in the hospital, but besides that confined to a bed, was because they really couldn't do anything more for me in a hospital setting. 
And so okay. uh, I lived uh, two hours from the hospital I was at. It was the, they brought me to Phil, the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia when I was 20. And I took an ambulance ride two and a half hours um, up north um, to go back to my mom's apartment and had a hospital bed brought into the living room. And we were there together for six months when the pins were still in. And oh, I had wow. a nurse every day come in the morning and I had a physical therapist come every day and I was completely confined to that bed. And it took two people to get me out of bed, one to hold my legs steady, because remember, I can't bend my knee and your leg's going to try to bend, but the rods prevent it. Sure, sure. So you're holding your leg like it's the most fragile piece of crystal ever. And then someone would have to hoist me from my back and under my, um, under my arms because I couldn't push down with my arms to like lift my body up on the bed. Right. And so it took two people, but it was only my mom and I in the apartment. So we'd have to wait till a nurse came. We'd have to wait till the physical therapist came. And then my dad um, drove from his job um, until he went back to his house at night to do the final round of physical therapy with me and put me back into bed. So it was like a full-fledged operation um, to sure, ensure, yeah. one, I don't atrophy, two, I don't get bed sores, and three, my leg heals. And the only way your leg is going to heal is by walking on it. That's the tricky part. So I wasn't walking to prevent the muscles from atrophying. I was walking to help the cells recalcify in my bones because mm -hmm. the break is when they saw it apart, it's such a clean break. It's not like if you were to break your leg running or something, um, the cells don't know how to heal. So you need to have the compression and the pounding of walking for them to re recalcify. And unfortunately, after getting the staph MRSA and being laid up an additional you know, two weeks in the beginning after the first surgery, stunted those growth of those cells and I ended up having a non-union. So the reason the pin stayed in for so long was because my bone wasn't healing and they would do x-ray after x-ray and I'd be 15% healed, 20% healed and never got very far. And, you know, I stayed in that house um, with my mom for that six month period, you know, continued pin care, continued physical therapy. Now, keep in mind, I'm 20 years old. I had my 21-year-old birthday in that situation, and I'm still on bed baths and bedpans. So cannot take a shower, cannot use the restroom. Completely lost my independence. Sure, but yeah. I made it happen, so I didn't, right? So I controlled the environment that I was able to control without noticing that I controlled it. That was you know, organizing my animals in my bed a certain way before I went to bed, putting the blanket over me in a certain way, having my little basket of a notebook and chapstick and my Walkman and, you know, all of that so I could feel independent. And I learned, yeah. yeah, I learned to do these things out of necessity. And what's fascinating about my whole story is when I ended up persevering through that whole ordeal, um, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I didn't know that when I heard a Mariah Carey song on TV and it was about walking through the rain and I will stand up once again, that I got that CD and I listened to that track three times before bed every single night. And I envisioned myself walking again and playing in the backyard with my future children and walking down the aisle to get married someday. And that visualization and that positive mindset I didn't know how to do that. No one told me to do that. I instinctively just figured that out during that time. And it took a long okay. time to get there, but I mm -hmm. had a long time. What's fascinating, and I won't fully jump through, but my second story, my perseverance story was fully intentional because I didn't have time to waste to figure it out. I had to put a call to action. 
Okay. So I'll, I'll go back to my leg story for a second. So I'll, uh, I'll fast forward a bit, but in May, after I've been, after I was home for six months with the pins in, um, I'm at about 260 some days right now with the pins in my legs. And, uh, they had another blood test and I had a major, major infection and they rushed me to the hospital and said, your body's, you know, rejecting the metal. And there's a good chance we might need to amputate. And they had said to me, you know, I'll, I'll, I very clearly remember this moment before I went into the OR. They said, Carrie, we don't know how you're going to end up out of this. You know, you can wake up without a leg. You can wake up with new pins in. You can wake up without pins in. You can wake up with a brace on. Like, we might take the pins out. Your leg's not even halfway healed, and it could just shatter. I, we, we have no idea. And, you know, going into that, I remember just, you know, praying to God that it would be okay. And that's one thing that did go well. They, they were able to save my leg. Uh, I had brought a, a brace with me that was custom fit, but it did not fit at all because the way they had to fit me was not tr- mm-hmm. a traditional way. So they were able to kind of cast me after they got the pins out and kind of knock me out into a coma for two days because they said, if you even sneeze, your leg's going to shatter. So we're going to kind of knock you out, keep you sedated uh, until that brace is made and flown back to us. And then we'll get you up and moving. And that's what they did. I had this crazy robotic brace that went from, you know, underneath my breast to my hip, all the way down my leg and under my foot. It was plastic and metal. And, you know, remember that I still hadn't bent my leg now in, in, nine, in months and, you know, in eight months. So that had to be a slow process because, you know, when you have your ACL repaired or your MCL and they work with you on bending your knee after that surgery, they usually kind of force it a little bit, right? And mm-hmm. you have to break some of that cartilage. They couldn't do that to me because if they did, it would push the pressure points on where the break was. And instead of it breaking the cartilage in my knee, it would break the bone again. So the physical therapy had to be slow and steady wins the race, basically. Okay. So hearing your your amount of time spent in the hospital kind of reminds me. So in a similar lane. So when when my daughter was in the hospital, Mm -hmm. uh, she was in for 97 days. Wow. And, and so uh, 33 of that was in ICU, total of 97 altogether. So I know that. Is she okay now? A, Do you, can, I, can I ask that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so okay. that was two years ago. She was 12 then. She's 14 now. Uh, she'll be 15 at the end of this year. Wow. But uh, so she has a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And, oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm actually very familiar. My great uncle had that. Okay. So, and yeah, that's really so rare. She, yeah. She was paralyzed from the neck down. Yes. Um, you know, and all these different things. And so, you know, so I'm familiar with having to stay extended wow. times in, in the hospital. But I also know as a parent what it did to me mentally, emotionally. Uh, what was the impact like for your parents hmm. after that? You know, what was the what was the residual effects? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting question. And I, I fully didn't understand what my mom went through until I became a mom myself. Okay. And, you know, at the time, my mom actually never left my side at the hospital for those 73 days. She slept in a, in a chair and, you know, was yep. offered to do different things. And she stayed by me and wanted, you know, was my advocate. And I was on like, some heavy pain med. And so wasn't able to fully think for myself for a long of it, a lot of it. And she was my advocate. She was my rock. Um, and you know, obviously then at home, she had the duty of the nurse, the doctor, the physical therapist, the therapist, the cook the cleaner, the poop giver, the, you know, the everything. So, 
when she struggled was when, when I got better and I kind of like left her nest. Right. Oh, yeah, so yeah. that's when, that's when she really struggled. I mean, obviously she, sh- she struggled throughout it and seeing me in pain and hurting so much and feeling so helpless. Uh, those are the moments I don't understand so much. And she doesn't like to talk about them a lot because it, it really affected her. Um, I could appreciate you know, after, that. Yeah. And after I got the pins out, her and I lived at the Ronald McDonald house in Philadelphia for another five months together. And I did outpatient physical therapy seven, uh, five days a week for five hours a day. And that was full body until I learned how to walk again and had the brace removed. And then at that time, the doctor said, we don't want you to go back to college where you were before. Nursing's probably not the right thing for you. Can you transfer to Philadelphia and go to a school here? And I did do that. And so she went back north and I stayed here. And she struggled with that a lot. She kind of felt like she lost her identity and was super worried about me. And you know, every time I called her, we would talk once a day. She'd answer the call on like half of the first ring. And she told me like, I'm like, gosh, you always answer the phone so fast. She goes, I always think something's wrong. And she's like, I will always answer your call. I always think something is wrong when you're calling. And so that took her a long time. And I, I never fully understood it until I became a mom. And, you know, even your kids have just some sniffles or, you know, need stitches from getting their chin cut. And you feel that, immense love and helplessness and for the simplest little things i can't imagine what she went through it's hard for me to even fully fully understand and same same with you it's you know it's it the caregiver role is almost i actually think it's harder than the patient role in those senses it can be that's that's for sure i know uh so for the 97 days that my daughter was in the hospital i was there for 95 of the 97 my wife was there for all 97 um I went home twice and it was like one of those things that every time we went, I went home each time something awful happened. And I, you know, was breaking every speed law in the state of Michigan that was possible to get back to the hospital. Uh, Fortunately, uh, I didn't get pulled over. So thanks to the state police for that (laughs) one. But, you know, so and everything you just talked about is, is completely accurate as as a, as the caregiver, you know, even when we got home, uh, it was still difficult because trying to figure out our place and and figure out what we were doing and how we were doing. Um, but then there was also the recognition at that point of of this was also a traumatic event that my child had gone through mm-hmm. and trying to help them through it. So yeah. for you as the person who went through, because this was also traumatic for you, mm-hmm. what was the impact for you and how did you deal with it? What's interesting is the the time it happened in my life, it was probably the best time it could have possibly happened, um, if there was ever a good time. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was in college, so I didn't have a care in the world as far as an adult life, right? I wanted to graduate and get a job. It's not like I had a job that I then had to quit or had only a certain amount of time of leave. Um, right. I'd already graduated high school, so I finished with my class. You know, in my sophomore year when I had the first surgery, it was de- detrimental to me to have to stay back. And so I homeschooled, you know, graduate on time. So it was like college. I knew I could take time off and, and still get back. Now, I say that much easier now because then, obviously, I was very upset about not continuing with my year. I already had my roommate picked out. My best friend and I were going to continue plans. Sure. I was going to be a nurse. Now I couldn't be a nurse. So obviously, the big moments in the in the time was very difficult. But it was probably the best time that it could have happened. Um, I was mature enough to handle the situation, but yet 
I didn't lose anything overly majorly in my life. Like I can't imagine if that happened and I had to take two years out of my life today with a career, with a husband, with my children and how that would affected me. Now my second story is similar, but not for that same length of time. So I'm very grateful that it happened when it happened. Um, but it definitely affected me. Uh, I, I did not have a mental health struggle afterwards, which I'm still kind of surprised with. I think it's because I I truly focused on the positives when I was home for those six months and at the five months of the Ronald McDonald House. The 73 days in the hospital, I remember probably 20 some days of it. I mean, I was in excruciating pain. Um, I was on a lot of pain medicine. I don't remember a lot of it. I think my brain probably blocked a lot of it out. Um, Probably so, yeah. Yeah. But when I was home and the pain was more controlled and I had a routine going, I, my mom did such a great job, like staying positive with me and, and, and making sure I had tasks and still, and still felt independent and still felt as much in control as I possibly could. I mean, there was a day that I said to her, like, mom, I haven't been up to my bedroom in like over a year. Can we clean out some of my drawers? Like, can you bring down my sock drawer and my underwear drawer? And like, can we clean that out together? And she'd be like, sure. You know, and like we would do simple things like that. And, you know, I'd always have visitors and, and things. And so we made it as joyous as we possibly could. And Excellent. I think that's okay. what really helped. That's definitely what really helped. And same with okay. the Ronald McDonald House, routines to walk around the block. And, you know, I remember our big thing would be going to CVS and getting the, you know, the Us Weekly magazine when it dropped every Thursday. And like that was a big deal. And that was what we looked forward to. It was like the simple things to be excited about. And that's what kept us going. I, yeah, for us, uh, the thing was, so we, after we left the children's hospital and we went to the local rehabilitation hospital, uh, once she got cleared to leave grounds, because there were, for a while she was on a feeding tube, she was on breathing assistance and, and, uh, some other things, but, and she was, you know, having been paralyzed from the neck down, once she actually was able to start using an electric wheelchair and we could leave grounds, we, there was a, uh, uh, they call it the market, but it's uh, indoor, like all these diff- little different uh, food trucks inside of a building. And you can go in there and, you know, uh, there's, you know, sandwich shop and there's uh, a fresh, yeah. uh, authentic Mexican food. Uh, there was Vietnamese food. There was um, fresh sushi, all these different things. OK. And so we would go down there at least once a week. And we'd go down there and have lunch together or, or dinner together after she was done with all of her therapies for the day. And at the end, what we did to help her, her, her mental state, help her be able to focus on, on moving forward because, and that's really where the name of the show came from, because not only my own personal health issues when I was in my thirties, but also uh, my daughter's health issues. We always said that we were going to focus on moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so when it came time to name this, this show, it was pretty simple. We we're going to talk about, you know, focus, how we become focused on forward. So, uh, but, you know, we set out these little goals for, uh, you know, uh, there was a, a line of, and I, I, I'm going to get the designer's name wrong. I think it was Vera Bradley. I want to say Vera Bradley. Okay. Um, but there was like a backpack and a towel and a, a drink mug. And it was all these. Uh, that sounds about right. Vera Bradley does that. Yeah. Yeah. All these different, uh, it was a whole line of different things, you know, that, that Kendall had wanted. And so each week when she met her goals, we gave her one thing from that line. And so it it was almost kind of like Pokemon, you know, collect them all Uh, by the time we got done. uh, But that was one of the things we did to try and help, you know, uh, give her something because she's very, 
very goal-oriented girl, mm -hmm. very, very driven. And so giving her something to reach for every week was very helpful. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Since 1982, Vital Signs and Graphics has been helping professionals with all their image, logo, and design needs. Perhaps you're looking for signs and banners, truck and trailer lettering, business cards, brochures, or other image and marketing aids, Vital Signs and Graphics in-house design studio has you covered. From logos to apparel, start to finish, Vital Signs and Graphics has everything you need to look and feel professional. Call Rick at 231-652-3300. He'll get you noticed. And now back to Focused on Forward. Uh, so let's, okay, so we've, we've talked about your, your, your challenge of going through EDS and everything that you've been through. Uh, with that first part of your story, now let's talk about the second part of your story. And this is the one out of the two parts of your story, as crazy as that first one is, <laughs> this is the one that really kind of blew my mind because not only A, I didn't know it was as prevalent as it is, but B, the, how really it affected your body and what you went through. So I, I'm, so please tell us about that. Sure, sure. So, you know, fast forward to after my leg surgery, um, I went back to school, I transferred schools, I graduated college and started a, you know, a full-time job, met my husband, we, you know, dated for six years and got married and had a beautiful wedding. And then, you know, a few years later decided to expand our family and knowing I would be high risk for pregnancy because of the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, I had seen many doctors after we got pregnant and had multiple ultrasounds and my pregnancy with my son um, went very well. He was breech, and so I had to have a C-section, uh, which was okay because we were concerned with a, you know, a vaginal delivery. If I had an epidural and they pulled my legs back, my hips could dislocate, and I wouldn't feel it, and that could be a problem. So there was a lot of questions about that. So, okay. you know, in that sense, God made up His decision, and a C-section it was. And that that information is kind of important because of what it leads to, is. You know, two and a half years later, um, we decided to expand our family again and, you know, got pregnant and we were having a daughter, which was truly a dream of mine to have both a son and a daughter. And I was monitored very closely again at my 20 week anatomy scan. Uh, I found out I had a placenta previa and not to get too technical, but it's when your placenta is over your cervix. And so typically mm -hmm. If it stays there, you have to have a C-section. But in my sense, I was going to have one anyways. So it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, they had told me I had an increased chance of bleeding. And I, to complicate it in more ways, I also have a blood condition. So I was on a blood thinner to avoid blood clots. And so they said, considering oh you're on a blood thinner daily and getting injections in your stomach daily, and now you have an increased chance of bleeding, if you do bleed, uh, you need to call 911 because you can hemorrhage. Well, um, at 25 weeks, it was right after the holidays on January 5th, uh, 2018, uh, I ran an errand on my lunch hour and I was in a retail store and I felt this gush and I excused myself to the restroom and I knew either my water broke or I was bleeding and I, I was actually hemorrhaging. Called 911, went to the hospital, was transferred to another hospital that had a level three NICU in case I was to deliver. And I never left for 65 days. Oh, and boy. 
the situation with that was interesting because they expected me, I bled on and off for the next four or five days. And they had first told me I had to be not bleeding for a day to go home, then a week. And I finally said, you know, I feel like you're pulling my leg here. I'm not really going anywhere, am I? And they said, no, you're, you're not. And you're likely going to bleed at some point again and likely deliver early and yada, yada, yada. And so at that point, um, I immediately went into action. And I, I said like, okay, Carrie Creed, you've got this. If you're going to be on bed rest in this situation right now, let's pull from everything you've learned from, you know, back in 2002 and, 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 and make this, make this happen. Um, I don't have time to figure out what to do or sulk or, you know, sit in the corner. I need to take action because the longer I keep this baby inside of me, the better off she's going to be. And I'm going to be. And so at that moment, I knew, you know, some major things that I had to do and some might seem silly, but they, they changed my mindset. I like decorated my room, like something fierce. And the first thing I did is that, you know, I went on Etsy and I ordered a custom banner that said, keep on cooking baby sister. Cause my son would call her baby sister. And we, we had like that funny saying, keep on cooking. That's cute. And then, yeah. And then I put up a whole wall of motivation at like 4am. I thought about like, why don't I just get a bunch of quotes and I screen grab them and send them to my husband to print and I'll cut them out and tape them off. And I made a whole wall of motivation and I had flowers and plants and ultrasound pictures and my son's artwork and my room just exploded with color and positivity because wonderful hospital rooms are just blah, you know, like it was just so yucky in there. Oh yeah. So I had to make it, I had to make it my own battery operated candles and Alexa dot with Enya and, you know, Nora Jones mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and all that soothing stuff. But what I did decide to do is I kept working. So my boss at the time had said to me like, okay, we're going to start maternity leave now. And I said, Oh no, we're not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm like, first of all, I am not ready to go out. My stuff is not, you know, tied up. I'm in sales. I was working on some major deals. And I was like, listen, if you want me to stay controlled in this environment and stay focused, I need to have a task to focus on. And it's not me mm -hmm. Googling this condition or me thinking about what can happen. And so they agreed to let me continue working. Um, I actually ended up closing the second biggest deal in our company history from the hospital room, which was pretty oh, wow. exciting. So that was really cool and, um, <laughs> and said, um, that was awesome. And then what had happened two weeks later was I got an ultrasound every week and that was the only time I was ever able to leave that very small room. And it was right at the time that they had said to me, like, you haven't bled again and we might need to send you home and, you know, insurance might kick you out. And I was terrified of going home because 12 hours before my bleed, we had a massive snowstorm here in Philadelphia and I live on a mountain and there's no way an ambulance could have got up my road. And so I was saying to myself, if I go home and I bleed and it's in the middle of a snowstorm and I, the ambulance cannot get on my road, like what happens? Right. And so they, they did the ultrasound and they were like, good news and bad news. The, the good news is your wish is, you know, you're not going anywhere. You're staying. The bad news is you, you have the condition of what you're hoping you wouldn't and that's placenta accreta. And placenta accreta is life-threatening. Um, it's when your placenta attaches to your uterus and does not detach and be removed from your body after you deliver. Normally you deliver the baby and the placenta comes right out. This is when your placenta literally like eats through your uterus um, and there's different levels of it attaching. And the only way for your placenta to leave your body is by a full hysterectomy. 
And what happens at that time, the reason why it's so serious and so life-threatening is your body naturally tries to get rid of your placenta after you deliver. And since it's so ingrained in your uterus, you start hemorrhaging. And so they have to remove your uterus faster than your body's hemorrhaging to be able to save your life. So, I mean, I was so grateful that the doctors diagnosed me with this because most of the cases happen at delivery because women only have an ultrasound at 20 weeks. And if everything looks good at 20 weeks and you don't have placenta previa, right. you're not looking for a creta. Right. And you deliver a baby and the placenta doesn't come out. And then you have this massive blood and the doctors are like hitting red buttons and doing emergency hysterectomies. I had it looked at. I was the star patient of them being researched and dry runs every day. And I feel so blessed to have it diagnosed. Um, you know, I work with a lot of women now who go through, who went through this trauma of not knowing ahead of time and thinking they were going to deliver this beautiful baby and the baby being delivered and them then, you know, hemorrhaging and losing consciousness. They wake up and they're told they had a hysterectomy and their, you know, their goals of having more children is, is crushed. And so that's a completely different trauma than what I went through. I still can't have more children, but I had time to kind of prepare for that in a sense. To process it, um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but when they, when they told me in the hospital, you know, A, I was going to have a hysterectomy. Um, B, I was going to be under general anesthesia. So I'd miss the birth of my daughter. My husband would not be in the OR with me. She would go to the NICU because she'd be born early. Um, I'd have a blood transfusion to save my life. And I, you know, may go to the ICU or may have lifelong medical conditions because of this. It was almost too much to handle. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and say like I was always positive and, and happy. Mm-hmm. I, I allowed myself that time to grieve and I gave myself a good two, three days of fully being upset and not being okay. And then I told myself, okay, they now told me that the amount of time I could carry my daughter was 34 weeks. Originally it was about 37 weeks. I was trying to stretch them to 38 when I had just previa, but when you have a creta, they don't let you carry your baby past 34 weeks and a normal pregnancy is 40 weeks. Right. So my due date was April 15th. They were only going to let me carry her to March 6th. So I was like, okay, I've got to get to March 6th. That is my goal. And I had a homemade calendar on the wall and I did a big red circle around March 6th. And I had a countdown every day and I, you know, the doctors would check me every day and, and they, you know, to see if I was beating, if I bled more, the chance of getting there was slim. And, you know, what was so interesting is no one thought I'd get to March 6th. And I told anyone, if you walk in this room and you say, I'm not getting to March 6th, you can turn around and walk right out because I'm getting <laughs> to March 6th. The room, this is like a no negative, you know, vibe in this room. I'm getting to March 6th. You know, my, my son was born in February. He's my February baby. She was supposed to be my April baby. And I'm not letting her not be my March baby. And, you know, long story short, I got to March 6th and, you know, the OR was full of 30 people that day. Um, we got to the, you know, the 7 a.m. Um, operating time. The doctors had a full plan. They did dry runs every day while I was there. Um, the amount of people that knew about my case in the hospital and took tremendous care of me was unbelievable. And, you know, yes, it was extremely scary, but I promised myself with my husband that we would both go into that day with a positive mindset and not negative or, or fearful or anything. And that I would go under knowing that it would be okay. And that's what we did. And 
my surgery went extremely well. It was a lot faster than they thought. I mean, they said it could be anywhere from an hour to eight hours. I think it was like a little bit about two. Um, I did have a blood transfusion. The good news is the placenta did not go all the way through my uterus. They thought it was attaching to my bladder, but it was just, it just shy. So they didn't have to do bladder repair surgery, which was a huge oh, blessing because that's phenomenal. when it gets really, really challenging. Yeah, it's um, very dicey. Yes, yes. And that's what they were very fearful of. In fact, they almost bumped up my surgery because they saw the MRI mm. and it looked like it was already attached. So, um, okay. you know, my daughter went to the NICU. She spent 18 days there. I uh, did very well. She's wonderful now, you know, has some low tone. Um, and, you know, but otherwise she's, she's a beautiful, wonderful, smart, bouncing little girl. And, uh, you know, everyone thought after we got to March 6th and I delivered this baby that like the challenge was over and we did it. And I then came home and, you know, first leaving the hospital after that experience without your baby is one of the most effed up situations mentally, sure, like after sure. being in the hospital for 65 days and then leaving the hospital without your baby when you're only there for your baby is a very difficult situation in itself. Um, I've heard that before. Yes. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Um, I was already having some disconnect from her and I was having some mental health challenges right off the bat after she was delivered, mostly because she was in the NICU and I was in major pain from having a 10 inch vertical scar in my stomach and, you know, hardly being able to move and only being able to see her for short periods of time. I was already feeling disconnected, but leaving fully without her was, was so difficult, but yet being home and being able to embrace my three-year-old son and put him to bed that night and have him call me in the morning kind of saved me in the sense that I, I had purpose to be home. Um, but then obviously returning every day to the NICU. You know, when people said it would come visit me and after she arrived back home from the NICU and it was like, oh, you're a family of four, is back together, you did it, Carrie. I, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I, th I, I, I think, like, I, I know I crushed that. Like, I know that I fully persevered in the best way possible throughout that experience. And I'm super proud of it. But something still felt really, really off. And I just couldn't put my finger on it. So it wasn't until um, about four months postpartum that I lost full control. Um, the anger, the sadness, the triggers, the rage. Uh, you know, I would see sure. an ad for maternity clothes and I was so angry I could never be pregnant again. I'd see somebody, you know, delivering their baby on like, you know, Facebook and holding their baby skin to skin, or I'd see a commercial about, you know, labor and delivery and the beautiful, you know, birth and, and all that. And I missed all those moments. I missed everything, everything that you wish for when you have a baby, I missed. Okay. Um, everything I kind of had with my son, even when he, even when he was a C-section, I remember the first cry. My husband was in the OR. I came back from getting sutured. He was holding my son. I immediately breastfed. You know, like all of those things. Oh, yeah, beautiful memories. I, I, yeah, I missed, and I knew I was going to miss them. Um, but I I didn't didn't know how much. And it was, I did start therapy right after I left the hospital. They, the doctors had recommended I go to some one-on-one -on -one therapy because I had been through such a traumatic experience. And I'm very grateful I did that because for the first four months, I was kind of just like, everything's okay. You know, I feel a little detached from her, but, you know, I love her to death and, you know, we're doing our thing and all that. But then when the rage and the sadness started, um, my therapist was almost kind of waiting for it. She kind of knew it was going to happen at some point. It was kind of like, when is the shoe going to drop? Sure. And I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And when she said that to me, I was so naive in what that meant. I mean, I I only thought war veterans was diagnosed, Absolutely. you know, were diagnosed yeah. with that. I didn't really understand that you could be diagnosed with that for other purposes or reasons until I started Absolutely. doing some research and just seeing how common it is. And at that point is when we started um, EMDR therapy. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that or not. Yes, I have. Okay, so EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, truly, truly saved my life. I was in a dark, dark place, having dark thoughts, scary thoughts, uh, thoughts I didn't understand, thoughts I didn't want to have, sure. and just not the person I wanted to be. And EMDR therapy truly, truly healed me. And it took six, eight months of going through this and reliving the trauma. And, you know, for your listeners, this EMDR therapy truly helps people heal the trauma in their brain. Because when you can't get through something, it means an error, you know, it was described to me as like a filing cabinet, right? If you have opened a filing cabinet and you have all these folders, if a folder is sticking up and you try to close the door, the cabinet's not going to close. And that folder sticking up is kind of the unresolved trauma in your brain. And right. you need to find a way to get that folder to go down. And that's what this therapy does. And the only way to you know, seal that and close that folder is to relive that trauma. And it's mm -hmm. painful and it's emotional and it's anxiety driven. And it took a ton of work, an unbelievable amount of work and a lot of suffering outside of therapy, going through the emotions of what we did in therapy. Right. And there was weeks I had to take time off. And, but it truly, truly saved me. And it was after that when I felt healed from it and was aware of my triggers without them triggering me anymore that I, I looked at myself in the mirror one day and I said, you know what, I've always, I've always wanted to share my story with my leg surgery and living with an mm -hmm. invisible illness when people don't understand the pain I live in daily and write a book and speak to audiences, but life just got busy, right? And then now after having the second experience and you know, realizing the strategies that I use with my leg surgery, were then intentionally used with my pregnancy journey and worked and allowed me to persevere. And even though I first viewed that I failed because I had the mental health struggle, I that was a bump in my road that now allows me to understand others so much better than I previously did. Yeah. And that I hit rock bottom, but then came up so high and so much better than I ever was that now it really provided me a platform and allows me to be so passionate about what I already am. And that's truly helping others and helping them to realize that what they're going through, you know, is not the end of the road for them. And there's going right. to be something that comes out of this that's positive. And that's why I love to share. Absolutely. I, I think one of the, the biggest things that we focused on, uh, you know, other than the saying focused on for when, when we mm -hmm. were in the hospital is that every challenge, every bump in the road that we, we hit, as a family, we sat down and we said, okay, what's the silver lining here? What's mm. what's the plus yes. that we can take away from it? And that's really hard to do when you're in the depths of things. Uh, but, it, you know, looking back on it, I think that's one of the things that actually benefited us the most. Yep. I also wanted to say that up until two weeks ago, I had never heard of EMDR. No way. Uh, yeah, you are the third person So what person happened two weeks, two weeks ago? Uh, really? Another so another interview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are the third person in two weeks that I have interviewed that has talked about EMDR. And huh. in each case, uh, it has been brought up with absolutely glowing reviews. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, it was one of those things where I had to actually have to, uh, when we got done with the interview, I had to go do some research on this. I'm like, what is EMDR? What, you know, what is going on with it? And it's a very, it's a fascinating process uh, for me. I, I haven't, I, we haven't used it with my counselor. We, you know, we've, we've stuck to more, some of the more traditional types of therapies, but I, you know, if, if you're struggling, if you feel like you've hit a plateau, um, I am by no means a counselor and I am by no means a therapist, um, but perhaps that's something that, that you and your um, medical mental health professionals can take a look at. Um, but just throwing that out there. So, yeah. but anyway, um, yeah, you, Carrie, I, I could sit here and, and talk to you uh, all day because <laughs> you're very, A, you're very easy to talk to. And I find myself, uh, instead of jumping in with questions, I find myself listening and going, holy cow. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, because you've had, you've had quite the story, but yeah. you know, and again, if you go to her website uh, and you're, you're looking around again, that's carriecreed.com. But if you go to her website, you'll notice a couple of things. Uh, number one, she, she shows you pictures that are intimate and private about things that she's gone through, but she also shows you the end result, her wonderfully beautiful family. And your kids are adorable, by the way. Aww, holy, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, they're cute. Um, you know, and typically I ask people where where it is they became focused on for, but it's clear that in, in each story you related how that happened. So what I would like to do instead is I'm going to jump right to another portion of the interview that I typically do. And I always ask people the same two questions every interview. Okay. Because I like to hear their responses. So looking back over the entirety of your journey, what's the single greatest lesson that you have learned? The single greatest lesson is that your mindset can truly change your outcome. Okay. And I believe that, especially, and that might sound super cliche, but I'll explain that a little bit. I fully believe with my leg surgery that if I didn't believe that I would walk again and focus on walking again, that I wouldn't have. And I feel like I would have fell into a deep, dark hole and would have ended up in drug rehab with all the drugs, uh, all the prescription medicine and pain meds I was on. And I would have took a completely different path. But literally my mindset to not give up and how I focused on that daily, I truly, truly believe that it changed my outcome. Oh, I agree. And I'm, I am a big uh, proponent of uh, positive mental thinking, positive mental attitude, focusing on focusing on the good. Because I think in, especially if you're going through issues that are going to result in trauma, uh, whether, and we're not talking necessarily mental trauma or, or, or not physical trauma rather, but mental mm -hmm. or emotional trauma, focusing on those things can help your, your mind give something else to look at. And it allows you to, to have a healthier mental or emotional journey through it. So yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, now the second question is very similar in nature. Looking back over the entirety of your journey, What's the single greatest piece of advice that you were given? Ooh, piece of advice that I was given. Ooh, wow, you might have stumped me. Um, All right. That might be a first stump. Let me, I might need to think for that for a second. Piece of advice that I was given. Um, the only thing that comes to mind was like, you know, doctors or physical therapists telling me like to trust them. Like trust them, like the, the people saying like, you're doing great. You just need to trust the process and trust me. This will, this, you will, you will be okay. And me, me believing them 
and not like shrugging that off and like holding on to that to be like, they wouldn't lie to me, would they? You know what I mean? Like, and some of it, like they might have, but I didn't allow that to kind of, you know, enter, enter into my mind. So I feel like that, yeah, I, that's not a great answer, but it's the only thing I can really think of from, from an advice standpoint is that I was told to just trust the process and, and believe that I will be okay. I think that's great advice, actually, and especially for going through what you had gone through. It would have been very easy for you to not trust the process, mm -hmm. uh, especially because uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, when you stay in a hospital setting for an extended period of time, it does do work on your mental state. Mm -hmm. And yes. uh, especially because, as Carrie mentioned earlier, hospital rooms are depressingly boring, no matter how much they try to life, you know, lighten them up and put pretty colors in them and all these different things. Uh, they're a very sterile environment, but after a while, that sterile environment becomes very drab and repetitive, and it becomes very, you know, it's the doldrums of the everyday, and mm -hmm. so it can really weigh on you heavily, and you can, and you become very cynical very quickly. Yes. Uh, so uh, trust the process, I, I think, is actually phenomenal advice if you're willing to take it and, and follow it. Yeah, so. and I, I also think this is this is a, something else I'd like to add is if you're able to somehow add humor to the process, do it. And, you know, in the midst of a, a traumatic experience, you might say, how the heck would you ever find humor? But I'll give you an example of something that, you know, I was even saying like, you know, cleaning out my sock drawer and, you know, finding little notes I, my boyfriend put in there from middle school and like sharing with my mom, like just stupid things like that. But in the hospital with my pregnancy journey, uh, a few weeks before I ended up delivering, they wanted me to start walking the halls just twice a day, just to start moving my body because I was atrophying and I needed to move a little bit. But again, it was a fine balance between mm -hmm. is that going to cause me to bleed? Well, I was doing a late night, just simple lap to the nurse's station. One of the nurses' husband came in to surprise the nurses with some um, with some coffee. And she was introducing her husband to the people. And, and uh, I just turned. I was like, oh, hi, I'm Carrie. I live here. And everyone just cracked up laughing, like, like literally the whole place just died. So it was just, you know, something funny that, you know, I was like, I live here. I've been here two months. And yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> the I was like, wait, what? So it just, you know, I could have introduced myself completely different, but I made a joke of it and it was light. And I, I found that that really helped. Yeah. You found the humor in it. You were able to find a silver lining. That's fantastic. Exactly. All right. So. I have one completely random question for you. All right, shoot. All right. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say? A billboard with anything on it. It would definitely be some sort of quote. I'm very big into motivation, positive quotes. Um, okay. I have so many favorites between, you know, the... Something with uh, the fact that, you know, the path that you're meant to be on will be the one that you end up walking. And it's okay if it's different than the one you intended. Um, you know, uh, there's another one about, you know, worrying. Worrying is like a rocking chair. It doesn't get you anywhere. It just takes a lot of energy. Right. Uh, you know, you're, you're stronger than you give yourself credit for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the other one is you know, when other people expect you to crumble, that's when you need to be that, you know, I'm going to mess that one up, but it's something about the stand. You show your strongest when people think you're going to fall your part, fall apart. So uh, it would definitely be a quote because 
having quotes around me is something that I've always done when I've when I've been challenged. I have quotes in my office and uh, definitely since we're quote, but if it was going to be a billboard, I have to think long and hard about what quote that would be because my simple like I've got this is not strong enough for that. So I would sure. need to be a little bit more thoughtful. I appreciated you being on today so much, and I've so enjoyed listening to your story and and just enjoyed your positivity. You're an excessively positive person, and it's very catching um, because the whole many times, even though you were talking about things that would be that are hard to listen to, you're saying it with a smile. And, you know, the, the people and I hope that that translates well through the audio for people to be able to to hear your smile. But you were smiling about 90 percent of this conversation. And and I absolutely love that. And so thank you so much and coming on Focused on Forward today. Now, we, we talked about your website, CarrieCreed.com. But is there anywhere else that people should go if they want to find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Instagram and my handle is at Carrie Creed Speaker. And then I also run a private Facebook group. It's called the Purposeful Perseverance Project. And you can search for it or you can send me a DM on Instagram and I can invite you to that. It's a a free group and it's about diving deeper into perseverance. And I, I share um, some tips and tricks. I also go live for about 10, 15 minutes every Wednesday at 12, 15 Eastern, uh, different topics. And I'd love for you to be a, to anyone that's interested to be a part of that group. It's an incredible community of a couple hundred people. Um, most of them are women right now, but it's not women exclusive and it's extremely okay. uplifting, supportive, and positive. So if that's the environment that you're interested in, I'd love to have you be a part of it. Excellent. Okay. Again, guys, please go to carriecreed.com. Check her out on Instagram at at Carrie Creed Speaker. Um, there's, you know, you can find her on, on Facebook as well. Uh, there's a depth of knowledge and, and, and so much more information that, that we didn't even have time to get into today. Uh, there's so much more on her website about what she's doing and, and everything else that, that honestly, we could have spent a couple hours here talking about just that. And so uh, strongly encourage you guys to go check her out. Again, CarrieCreed.com. And Carrie, again, thank you for being on Focused on Forward. And that's going to conclude us today. Thank you so much, Tim. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at PodcastFOF, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email, focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe. Be kind and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.